Well, it's great to have Pastor back tonight, isn't it? And uh, joy to see him, and I know many of you have been praying for him and continue to do so as he uh, mends and gets ready uh, for uh, this weekend. I'm thankful to be able to see him tonight and have him in the service. And thank you. I was thinking about the Philippian church and what Paul said to them in chapter 2. He said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's wonderful to be in a church when even the pastor is not here. People are still faithful. And uh, that's a sign of a healthy church and a, and a great church. And I'm thankful for it. And uh, it's been a great honor to be here this week and uh, preach God's word to you. And it's wonderful to see you here in your place tonight. Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a wonderful chapter on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to look at one verse that is kind of in the middle of this chapter that isn't dealing directly with the resurrection, but a powerful verse for us to consider tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want to call your attention to verse 34. Verse 34. The Bible says in verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 15, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Probably the hardest thing you and I do every day is wake up. I teach a class in the college called The Art of Storytelling. And as we get into the class, one of the projects is I assign each student a short phrase. And they must take that phrase and build a 10-minute story around that phrase. A couple of years ago, we got to that section of the notes. We'd covered a number of things about storytelling, and, and uh, so it was time for this assignment. And I began to assign the various phrases that I'd chosen to each of the students, and I assigned a young man this phrase. I took a nap. I took a nap. He now had about a week to prepare a 10-minute story around that title. I took a nap. Came time for his presentation, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. He told a story about how he was staying over the Christmas break to work his job. He worked in a distribution warehouse there in Lancaster, and at Christmas time, those places are very, very busy, and so they were offering him extra hours, extra work, double shifts, in fact, sometimes. And he needed the money for a school bill. And so he decided to stay through Christmas and work this job. And, of course, those guys work hard. They load trucks and unload things. And, and they work pretty hard physically and a pretty demanding job, at least physically. And so they had assigned him a double shift, a 16-hour shift. And this shift started on on Thursday and ended at 8 o'clock on Friday morning, 16 straight hours, with, of course, some breaks for, for lunch and so on. By the time he got back to campus about 8.30 that Friday morning, he was exhausted. He was hungry, but he was more tired than hungry. And so he went to his dorm, and he thought, I'm just going to crash. I'm just, uh, I'd like to have something to eat, but I missed breakfast, and I'll just have to wait till lunch. And so 
I think I'll just lay down and take a nap and then get up for lunch in a couple hours. So he laid down in his bunk, and of course, not a lot of people around during the Christmas break. Dorm's fairly empty, pretty quiet. He went to sleep. And when he awakened, it was 5 p.m. And he thought, oh my, I missed lunch. And I've got 30 minutes to dinner. And so he quickly jumped out of that bed and ran down the hall and took a shower quick and threw some clothes on and, and uh, rushed to the cafeteria. And he got there and walked in, and it was completely dead. There was nobody there. And, you know, the meal's at 5.30. It's about 5.28. Walked in there, and there's just nobody. Now, there weren't a lot of people on campus, but there were always people at meals. And, and he walked in there, and there was just nobody. And, and, and he had this feeling like somebody's playing a trick on him. And college is kind of known for that. You know, a lot of practical jokes. And he thought, okay, they're hiding or, you know, they're going to try to surprise me or something. So he's cautiously walking across uh, the, the area there to get to the cafeteria. And he's looking. He's kind of on guard. And he gets to the kitchen area, and he sees a couple of people way in the back of the kitchen. And uh, uh, they're working on the meal, apparently. And he's, he's, he called to him. He said, hey, where is everybody? And uh, they said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's time for dinner. It's 5.30, and, and it's time for the, the meal. And they said, no, the meal's not till 6. He said, no, Friday night, dinner's at 5.30. They said, it's not Friday night. This is Saturday. He had slept from 8.30 on Friday morning to 5 o'clock on Saturday night. That is a nap. But you know, I'm afraid that sometimes as Christians, we slumber for an even longer period of time. And God tells us here to awaken. Are we asleep tonight spiritually? Bible tells us in Romans 13 and verse 11, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou rise out of thy sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Paul tells the Thessalonians there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Ye are all the children of light and children of the day. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. The easiest thing to do when that alarm goes off in the morning is to reach over and hit the snooze button. 
maybe reach over and grab your phone or whatever device you're using to awaken you and, and, and kind of reset that thing and take another five or another 10 or maybe another 15 minutes and postpone maybe some things early in the day in order to get a little more sleep. And may I encourage you tonight not to hit the snooze button on God. In this little verse 34, I believe there are four alarms that are ringing tonight. First, we see the alarm of righteousness. He says, awake to righteousness. We have a lot of problems in our culture today. It seems like the news is filled with bad news, difficulties, problems. Yet God gives us a verse in Proverbs 14 and verse 34, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is reproached any being. Our problems in our nation tonight, our problems in our culture tonight could be solved if we would awaken to righteousness. Sometimes I wonder if we even know the difference between right and wrong. Sometimes I wonder if we really understand what sin is today. I have a feeling that we get the impression that it's not really wrong unless you get caught. You know, if you're, if you're doing something, live in a certain way, and, 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 and nobody says anything, or, or nobody sees you do it, or nobody knows about the situation, then it's really not wrong. That's the whole philosophy behind don't drink and drive. We have promoted that now for, for decades, you know, don't drink and drive. And basically what we're saying to our culture is go ahead and sin, just don't get caught. Because the Bible says don't drink. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. That's a polite way for God to say, John, get you ever take one drink, you're a fool. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babblings? Who hath wounds without a cause? They that tarry long at wine. They that seek after mixed wine. Look not thou upon the cup when it's red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. For at the last it stingeth like an adder and biteth like a serpent. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, thine heart shall utter perverse things. Thou shalt be as he that lieth in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of the mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When I awake, I'll seek it yet again. People say, well, I, I can control how much I drink. I can stop whenever I want to. I can smoke a little marijuana. It doesn't affect me. And, and I can quit anytime I want to. God just said you can't. You'll seek it yet again and again and again and again. And you're on a downward spiral farther and farther away from righteousness. But the world says, go ahead and sin. Just don't get caught. It's the whole philosophy behind safe sex. We have preached that now and spent billions of dollars trying to educate our children about safe sex. You know what we're saying to them? Go ahead and sin, just don't get caught. Because the Bible still says no sex outside of marriage. Well, 
that's old-fashioned. Yeah, God's pretty old-fashioned. Been around a long time. He's tested truth for centuries. God says no sex outside of marriage. First Corinthians, uh, 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 Hebrews 13, verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable in all. And the bed, it's the word koite, very explicit word. It's the Greek word that means the planting of the male sperm into the female. The bed is undefiled. You see, sex is not dirty. Sex is not wicked. In fact, you want to know the truth about it? The first command God ever gave to man was to have sex. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. God's not against sex. He invented it. He created us with the sexual component. But he says, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. You see, God placed this thing called sex, as we loosely call it, inside the boundary of marriage. Marriage is honorable in all. The marriage bed is undefiled. It's not wicked. It's not dirty. It's sacred. But you step outside of that boundary, and you've got sin. Just like if you, if you go to a basketball court tonight and you play some basketball, you've got some boundary lines around the court. And you can play inside those boundary lines and proceed with the ball, play offense, play defense, and enjoy the game. But the minute your foot hits that line, you're out of bounds. And God has placed the boundary line of marriage around this thing called sex. And God created it and placed it inside there, and God honors it and blesses it inside that boundary. We step outside that boundary. God says, you've got sin, and you've got my judgment coming in your life. The world says, oh, that's ridiculous. That's foolish. That's, that's old-fashioned. That, that, that's traditionalism. That, that, that's ridiculous. Go ahead and sin. Just don't get caught. What about our attitudes? What about our thoughts? What about our words? What about our friends? What about uh, our entertainment, our, our recreation? How do we know what is right and, and what is wrong? Is there something in the Bible that explicit about everything in our life? I mean, it's pretty, pretty obvious to me what God says about drinking, and, and it's pretty obvious to me what God says about sex outside of marriage, but what about some of these other areas? Is there a thou shalt and a thou shalt not for everything? Well, there's a wonderful filter in Colossians 3 and verse 17 where God says, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So God says, whatever you do in word or in deed, you're to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're to give thanks to God for what you just did, for what you just said, for what you just thought. That's a pretty good filter. So does God approve of our thoughts? Does God approve of our actions? Does God approve of our attitudes? Does God approve of our words? Does God approve of our friends? Does he approve of our entertainment, our recreation? Does he approve of our relationships? Awake to righteousness. He that saith he abideth in him, 
ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So, our steps ought to be in his steps. Our words ought to be words he uses. In fact, Paul says that very thing in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine according to godliness, he's proud knowing nothing. You see, our words, our actions, our thoughts, everything ought to mimic that which God would, would say or do or react. The alarm of righteousness. Don't turn it off tonight. Righteousness exalts a nation. If righteousness exalts a nation, think what it'll do for you. Think what it can do for your family. If we just get back to a righteous way of living. But I see, secondly, the alarm of revival. He says, awake to righteousness and sin not. We have sort of, I think, a misconception of what revival is. Typically, and, and this isn't necessarily wrong, but typically we, we think of revival in the sense of a meeting like this. We, we think we're having a revival at our church. And by that, we're, we mean we're having some meetings. And this week, we've had meetings Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And we call that a revival meeting. But we tend to compartmentalize revival to a meeting. There's something on a schedule, something on a calendar. Oh, we had a revival in June. We're having a revival in September or, or something like that. And that's kind of the way we think. But notice how God puts this sentence, awake to righteousness and sin not. In other words, God wants us to be living in a constant state of revival. It's so easy for us to, you know, go to camp or, or, or have a Bible conference or have a week of revival meetings and say, okay, this is my time to get right with God and I better get some things cleaned out of my life and I better get everything dedicated to the Lord and, and then when this is over, we can kind of go back to normal. God says, no, no, no. Awake to righteousness and sin not. The alarm of righteousness, but now the alarm of revival. I'm afraid we, we perhaps use 1 John 1, 9 a little too loosely. Now, 1 John 1, 9 is a wonderful promise. And if you haven't memorized that verse, you ought to memorize it because you need it every day. The Bible says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you thankful for that promise? Now, there are some teaching today that once you're saved, you never have to confess your sins again believe that, you know, your grace uh, covers it all for the rest of your life, and, and they, they claim that 1 John is written to, to the unsaved. Well, I beg to differ because the first verse says, my little children. So he's talking to us as Christians. And I'm glad that God didn't put a condition on that verse. I'm glad he didn't say you can use this a hundred times. No, every time we sin, we can use that verse. But I think if we're not careful, we get to the point where we know we have that verse almost like a lucky rabbit's foot in our pocket. And we know while we're sinning, we can pull 1 John 1, 9 out when we get tired of it and ask God to forgive us. And the whole time we're asking him to forgive us, we know we're going to go do it again. And we go do it again knowing we can get forgiveness. And we come get forgiveness knowing we're going to go do it again. And you know what God says? Stop. 
Hebrews 10.26 says, if we sin willfully, after that we've received the knowledge of the truth. In other words, we know better. We sin, we know we're sinning, and we're doing it anyway. If we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Whoa. I must be talking to unsaved people. No. Verse before says, Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I think that's talking to us as Christians. He goes right into this business of this matter of sin and the confessing of sin. And, and see, confessing sin means to agree with God about it, but it goes a step further. It means now to forsake that sin. He that covereth his sin, Proverbs 28, 13 says, shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. The alarm of revival. This matter of getting right with God and, and staying right with God. This matter of, of, of repenting of some things, some getting some things out of our life. Too often, I think we, we know the Bible too well, and we think, well, you know, I can take these promises and apply them whenever I want to, and I can live however I want to. A number of years ago, when my oldest granddaughter was four, she just graduated from high school a couple weeks ago, but when she was four years old, her dad was in evangelism, and, and Katie... And Annie, her two-year-old sister, they, they had stopped by the house. My, my son was traveling in meetings, and they got in late one Friday night and called and said, hey, can we kind of crash there for a few hours? we got a long trip ahead and on Saturday to get to the next church. Can we just stop at the house and, and crash? We said, sure. And I was just getting in from some meetings myself, and, and I had gotten in a lot earlier than they did. They got in about 2 in the morning. And so 6 o'clock came, and, and the girls, because they had slept on the trip, they were up. I mean, they, they, were, they were well rested. And so their mom kind of got them cleaned up, put some new clothes on them, you know, got them ready for the day. And she said, now you play, grandpa and grandma, they'll feed you breakfast, whatever, you know, and you play, and I'm going to go back to bed. And so uh, John and April were sleeping, but Katie and Annie, boy, they're up, and they're, we're, we're feeding them breakfast, and we're just kind of chatting with them, you know. Well, I decided I need to wash my car. It was it, it had taken some abuse on the last trip, and I was leaving again that day as well. And I, I, I said to my wife, I'm going to go wash the car. And, and so I headed out to the garage, and Katie, four, Annie, two, man, they came running after me. Yeah, Grandpa, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to wash my car. Why? Because it's dirty. Why? Well, because I've been traveling. Why? Because I'm an evangelist. Why? Because God called me. Why? I don't know. <laughs> you know how that works, right? So I'm in the garage. I'm getting the bucket. I'm getting the brush. I'm getting the soap. I'm getting some towels. I'm getting the spigot for the hose. I'm, I'm getting all the stuff. And they're saying, can we help, Grandpa? Can we help? I said, uh, I don't know. You guys are already all pretty and cleaned up for your trip. And I don't think your mom wants you to get all dirty again. And I said, but, you know, you, you can watch, and, and when we get to the drying part, we get to these towels, and we'll dry the car, I'll let you watch. Okay, okay, so man, they're marching after me. We go outside, and, and uh, we had kind of a cement uh, area there in front of the house, and, 
I got the hose and hooked it up to the spigot and put the put the nozzle on there. And you know, little kids in water, you know, they're just looking at all this. I poured the soap into the pail and I started spraying the water into that soap. And oh, those bubbles were you know kind of filling that pail. And that looked pretty inviting. And so they're over on some grass area, and I said, now you guys stay there and just watch, and I'll tell you when it's time to help. And so I'm spraying the car down, getting it all wet, and I grab that brush, and I'm, I'm, I'm scrubbing on that car. And, and the, 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 the spray nozzle, we're hooked onto the hose, those always leak, don't they? I mean, they never get on there right. And, and, and so some water was kind of getting on the driveway, and the next thing I knew, I turned around, and those girls had stepped off that grass, and they're kind of playing in that water. I say, girls, no, 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 get back on the grass. You don't want to get in this water. It's nasty. It's dirty. And, and you'll get all messed up. Your mom will get mad. So you, you, you stay on the grass. And just watch. Yes, sir, yes. And so I went back to scrubbing and, you know, washing. And now that water was kind of building up a little bit more in that driveway. Next thing I knew, I turned around. Here are those girls back in that water. Slopping in that water, you know, just kind of stomping around, getting... I said, girls, girls, no, no, get back on the grass. You do what I tell you to do. Stay on the grass. Your mother's going to be angry with you and with me if you get all messed up. Now, you stay on the grass and just watch. Yes, sir, yes, sir. I went back to Washington, trying to do it as quickly as I could. Well, that water started building up. And I turned around, and here was Katie, four years old. And she is stomping through that water. I mean, it's, it's splashing all over now. She's stomping through it. Little Annie, two years older, little sister, right behind her, just sloshing through that water. But while they're sloshing through the water, they're singing. And they're singing the song, O, B, E, D, I, E, N, C, E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? But boy, I tell you, the Holy Spirit began to preach to me that morning. Because I know the songs too, right? In fact, I know the scriptures oftentimes from which the songs came. And I've heard the messages. How many times am I still sloshing around in the water of the world? I know that this needs to go in my life, this needs to stop, that this grieves God, that this, this frustrates God as, as, as me being a child of His to, to think and to act and to, and to live as I'm living. And yet so often I can, I can say, well, I, I can excuse that because there's a revival coming, there's a service coming, there's a time I can come and get right with God. God says, no, 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 don't hit that snooze button of revival. Awake to righteousness. Awake to revival. Thirdly, awake to redemption. He says, for some have not the knowledge of God. You see, the reason that we need to awake to righteousness, the reason we need to awake to revival is because there are those around us that do not know God. And we're the Bible they're reading. Most people in Flint, Michigan, never picked up a Bible today. But many of them came into contact with us. And Paul said, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. 
written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshly tables of the heart. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, the Bible says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, which is the image of God, should shine unto them. That's kind of a long sentence. What does it mean? Well, let me see if I can illustrate this. Brother Burton, would you help me? You come up here and maybe stand right about there. And uh, would you help me? What is your name? Kirkland? Okay. I want you to stand over on this side. And, and you face me. Don't look at them. They'll scare you. You face me. Okay. Now, let's see if we can understand this verse. For the sake of the illustration and the illustration only, let's let Brother Burden represent God. Okay. Use your imagination. He is made in God's image, though, so who knows? But anyway, just for this illustration only, Brother Burden's going to be God, okay? Kirkland is going to represent somebody that's not saved. Kirkland, do you know what you're saying? The guy's right now, where's he going? Isn't that great? You can know that. By the way, I can't take that away from him, even for an illustration. I did this one time. I called a guy up. He was sitting in the front row. He's about 21 years old. I called him up and said, hey, uh, now you're saved, right? He says, no. I said, oh, well, just play yourself. <laughs> and, and so he did and uh, did a good job. And uh, when I gave the invitation that night, he came forward. He said, I don't want to be that lost guy anymore. I want to get saved. But Kirkland's already saved, okay? But, but again, for the sake of the illustration, let's let him represent somebody that's not saved. Okay, so we got God. we got a lost person. Let's let me represent somebody that's saved. I'm a Christian, but I have sin in my life. And I'm not willing to do it. I know it's there. I'm aware of it. God's shown me what it is. I, I don't want a part of getting it right. Okay. Now, the Bible says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Okay, that's Kirkland. Whom the God of this world, who's the God of this world? Satan, whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of God, which is the image of Christ, should shine unto them. Okay? Now, let me ask you something. Does God want to save the sinner? Yes. He's not willing that any should perish. That all should come to repentance. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Christ died for all. He loves the whole world. So, so God wants the sinner to be saved. Does the prince of this world, does the devil want the sinner to be saved? No. But is the devil as powerful as God? No. He's powerful, but he's not as powerful as God. Because the Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, to us that are saved, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So while the devil's very powerful, he's not as powerful as God. So the devil can't go up to God and say, God, you're not saving anybody anymore. Can't do that. God's bigger than he is. <laughs> the devil cannot stop the gospel from coming from God. 
doesn't have that power. But what can he do? He can take me, the Christian who has sin in my life, and place me between the sinner and God. Now, is the gospel still shining? Yes, it's still coming from God. Is the sinner seeing it? No, because it's being hit. It's being blocked. And it's amazing how the devil can put Christians who have sin in their life in the eyesight of those that confess. If lost people are honest with you, and they're not always honest about this, but if they are, oftentimes what it boils down to is they're not saved because of some hypocrite. And if they're honest, sometimes they'll say that, but sometimes you can tell they're thinking, I happen to know. I was in a church. I happen to see. And, and, and they're, they're blaming their lost condition on a, on a, on a sinful church. You see, this matter of righteousness in the Bible is important to you. Because the Bible says, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not worth. What a, what a sad thing for somebody to stand before God one day and say, as Gandhi did, I would be a Christian if it weren't for Christians. Now, if we don't hear the sound of that alarm for righteousness and the alarm for revival and the alarm for redemption, one day we're going to hear the alarm of regret. Because the verse closes, I speak the truth. When we are the reason someone is not saved, when we are the cause of their doubt or their confusion, God says, that's on us. And I speak that to your shame. Most of you are familiar with the sin of David. David blew it. I mean, David messed up. And, and David admitted. I mean, in Psalm 51, his prayer of confession, David knew he had sinned against God. And there was a lot of ramification of that sin. There, there, there were a lot of things that happened because of David's sin. The little baby dies. His wives are raped. I mean, his children are killed with a sword. I mean, it, it's a terrible, terrible result. I think the worst of all is in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 16 when Nathan says, By this deed, David, thou hast given the enemies of God great occasion. He said, David, you're the king of Israel. You're the man after God's own heart. You're the sweet psalmist. David, they're laughing at us. They're mocking us. They're making fun of God. Friends, when that happens, even though we may get right like David did, Will someone that you know tonight one day stand before God and say, I looked on my right hand and no man was known. Refuge failed me, no man cared for me. 
No one cared enough to live the Christian life in front of me. No one cared enough to, to tell me about Christ. No one cared enough to, to show me Christianity so I could see it and realize it was worth having. to feel like we deserve to rest and sleep. It's, it, it's a battle, this Christian life, as we saw last night. We deserve some rest. The truth is, God needs us to awaken. Tonight he sounds some alarms. The alarm of righteousness. The alarm of revival. The alarm of redemption. Or the alarm of regret. Are you awakened tonight? Are we going to take an act? day that trumpet sounds.